and welcome back to Mind Over Chatter, the Cambridge University podcast. I'm James. I'm Nick. And I'm Naomi. And once again, we're inviting you to join us in our conversations with clever, curious people here in Cambridge. In this third series, we're talking about health. And in this episode, we're focusing on cancer and artificial intelligence. We're going to cover everything from how AI helps us look at tumors differently, Grandpa JPEG and all the little pixels, and how AI might be able to help us treat patients more holistically. So who are we talking to? A surgeon. Hi, I'm Grant Stewart. I'm Professor of Surgical Oncology, or Professor of Cancer Surgery, that means, at the University of Cambridge, and I'm also a consultant urologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital Cambridge, treating kidney cancer. A computer scientist. Hi, I'm Matteo Young, and I'm Professor of Artificial Intelligence at the University of Cambridge. And a radiologist. I'm Evi Sadla, I'm Professor of Oncological Imaging at the University of Cambridge and a consultant radiologist at Addenbrooke's Hospital. As usual, we began by asking our guests to tell us about their research. Okay, so I'm a cancer surgeon and my, my research mission is to stop the horse before it bolts. So I want to treat cancer whilst it's still just in the organ from which it's arisen and uh, cure that patient of their cancer, usually by surgery only, as a one-off treatment before it spreads anywhere else in the body, at which point it's usually incurable. So uh, curing the patient by stopping the horse before it bolts. I'm actually interested in people and I want to make machines think more like people and do computational approaches to making the machines more like uh, helpful to people and we use sort of machine learning methods to do so uh, also in healthcare. What I want to achieve is to turn imaging into a virtual biopsy. Rather than taking a biopsy, you do it virtually, you don't need to take a biopsy. Great. Um, So in this episode, you all know, we're going to be talking about cancer and AI. So it's two complicated topics wrapped into one episode package. So we thought we'd start by defining a couple of things so we know exactly what it is we're about to be talking about. And um, Grant, I wonder if you would be able to define cancer for us on a very basic level, bonus points if you can do it without any biology jargon. Right, well, I'll try. Um, so, uh, actually, I, I looked, um, I was writing a textbook uh, recently, or a textbook chapter, uh, about cancer surgery. And so I had a chance to look back at some of the origins of where and when cancer was first identified. And it was first mentioned by Hippocrates, so 450 BC. And um, so he's, he's thought to be or called the father of medicine. And the word cancer comes from the Greek word for crab. And it refers to finger-like projections of, of cancer cells, as we now know them, from a central mass. Um, so similarities to the crab's claws and legs. Um, and actually, just moving on from that, you know, there have been a series of discoveries much more recently around, that eventually came to the discovery of the structure of DNA by Watson, Crick, and Rosalind Franklin, um, which has become the key discovery about how we under, now understand the molecular biology of cancer. So that was quite interesting. But, but to answer your question directly, cancer it are cells that are able to grow 
in an uncontrolled way and have the ability to grow and spread and and it's very difficult and and we can't it's very difficult to stop them doing that their growth starts off by destroying the organ in which they arise so in my case or the case of the organ I, I treat kidney cancer they destroy the kidney first and then and then they move on spread to other parts of the body if nothing is done about these cancers and will destroy that organ and eventually destroy the person in who they are present. So that's, um, I really liked the historical context around the like first description of cancer, but so on like a very basic level, cancer is an overproduction of cells, is that right? And the body, the body is made of, of cells, and I've heard it's over 200 different types of cells that make up the human body. Um, so does that mean in theory there's like 200 different types of cancer? Yeah, exactly. Actually, so um, yeah, we 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 often say there are are two hundred different types of cancer, and you're absolutely right. That's because basically any cell can can develop a an abnormality that becomes becomes cancerous, and usually that starts with an abnormality of the DNA, um, going back to Watson, Crick, and Franklin. Um, so you're absolutely right. Clearly, there are some cancers that we hear a heck of a lot more about than others. Um, so, you know, the most common cancers are, um, you know, we would call them the big four. So lung, breast cancer in women, bowel cancer and prostate cancer in men are, are, are the most common types of, of cancer. But yeah, you're right. There are over 200 types in total. And going to your point about the mutation side of it, can we talk a little bit about the sort of the causes? If that's purely mutation, if that comes from... Um, environmental stimuli or you mentioned DNA if we can just talk a little bit about the how the origins as well yeah so there there are a variety of ways in which the uh, DNA can be altered in in a cell to make to effectively turn it bad and turn it into a cancerous cell that then divides and grows and 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 continues to grow and eventually uh, cancers have to develop a range of uh, skills to to be able to to spread elsewhere in the body. So so there's a there's a range of a range of things that they need to do to to survive, um, such as avoiding avoiding death, uh, avoiding programmed cell death that are how cells normally turn over, becoming immortal, d- developing when they become big enough they have to provide they have to develop the ability to can you you to survive and they usually do that by um, producing growth factors that allow new blood vessels to develop Um, it's called angiogenesis in jargon terms but new blood vessels they need to be able to invade so invade away from where they are into blood vessels or lymph vessels which can allow them to travel around around the body um, and then be able to implant where they where they're going, so that they can spread to another organ. Um, so, but that all tends to come from these beginning genetic changes in an otherwise normal cell, and those genetic changes are, um, broadly speaking, are inherited. Um, so there are some inherited genetic changes that mean that certain cancers. Uh, are passed down in families 
A good example in the disease I treat, uh, kidney cancer, is something called von Hippel-Lindau disease, which um, has, gives the person a range of different abnormalities in their body, but the most common lethal problem that might kill them is, is a kidney cancer. So about 65% of these people will develop kidney cancers. So they can be inherited, or they can be um, a result of the environment. So the most common uh, stimulus, if you like, or that would cause mutations in DNA and then cancer is smoking. So um, that, that's uh, the main cause of cancers such as lung cancer uh, and bladder cancer. And actually it's, it's thought that worldwide about a third of all cancers are caused by smoking. As we think about the developmental side, how does it work visually? Like, how do we see it? Like, how early can we detect it? So, unfortunately, um, imaging is not sensitive enough of high resolution enough to actually detect very early cancers um, to, a, to a point when they are sort of um, really tiny, small, uh, before they actually get to more of a half a centimeter, let's say, um, size. Um, and, and, and even bigger in some other organs. So you detect a, a small, like half a centimeter, or even smaller tumor in breast with mammography or, um, or in, in, uh, with lung CT, with chest CT, especially smokers. Uh, but for some other tumors, unfortunately, they have to be to an to order of a centimeter before we detect on imaging. Um, uh, so, uh, so we detect them quite late uh, with imaging. Um, uh, and, and as you know, they are they are screening um, imaging screening programs in in breast cancer with with uh, with uh, um, a mammogram and uh, uh, and virtual colonoscopy with uh, with CT colonography, as well as the CT for lung cancer. But other than that, um, uh, the rest it's because it's very difficult to detect. Uh, in a way, has been has been a failure of imaging, if I have to call it that way, uh, to to detect early. Is it new machines that would allow us to detect, um, you know, half a centimetre or, or ten cells, you know, or, or is there something there that there's hope for the future to do so, that? So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a mixture of, I mean, you know, finding a nodule um, on a lung, on a lung CD doesn't mean it's cancer. So it's a balance or finding something on a mammogram, it doesn't mean it's cancer. So it's a combination of size and, and features. And some of it is down to resolution, you're absolutely right. So with an improve, with improved machines, with improved actually reconstruction algorithms, with AI, some of them, uh, we are able to actually um, uh, be better at, at detection and characterization. But I think what imaging um, uh, can offer in a, in a better way, it's actually looking at the function or physiology. So, and also um, a texture of the tumor, is the tumor, um, uh, the the phenotypic side heterogeneous are the features that actually you think this is a, a malignant rather than benign tumor. So that is the added value that the imaging can provide to characterize them. So it's it's a mixture of both, and I think I think um, uh, I think we're working on both angles. And the second one brings me to the virtual biopsy, right? So when are we able to actually remove the need for the biopsy? And this will come initially on the follow-ups, right? Because we know we've, we've got the tumor, we're following up the treatment can we remove the post-treatment biopsy, right? But eventually, can we actually turn imaging into a virtual biopsy, you know, in the years to come, so you can say, well, this is tumor, you know, it doesn't need a biopsy. So we're sort of, um, we're sort of getting into a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but let, 
um, let's make sure we understand what AI is so we can understand how it applies to the tumor imaging. So I'd like to bring Matea into the conversation at this point. And um, so in previous episodes of this podcast, we've talked about how AI can have cultural implications, but we haven't considered it in terms of its use in medicine. Um, so can you just have a give us a quick recap of what artificial intelligence is? So AI has different meanings to different people, but generally it's accepted to be a system, so a machine system, an algorithm, that is able to learn, that is able to reason, that is able to uh, perform tasks that we would, if humans did them, we would consider them uh, intelligent. And so that, and in ways that are indistinguishable from humans as well. And in fact, that's actually, um, so some people want to go in the area of uh, of defining general AI, which is that we can think and infer and learn in the same way as people do. And it's indistinguishable and do tasks as well. And some people don't go quite so far and still consider systems and AI when they are working in specialized areas. And that's where we are today, in fact. We, are, we have a lot of AI around us everywhere that is helping us with lots of very mundane and some very sophisticated tasks. So, you know, like even just talking to your phone might be a mundane task, but a lot of technologies behind that to understand what you're saying to really sophisticated tasks like in medical imaging where, where the machine is really assisting Um, radiologist in, for example, tagging and annotating the images and identifying regions in the images. So, yeah, so in general, AI are intelligent systems that that demonstrate behavior that if a human was doing it, we would consider to be intelligent. And that's my definition, but I think that is probably roughly generally accepted definition. I think, yeah, that that's good and it makes sense. I think in your initial intro you said something with the term machine learning. Is that the same thing? Is it a subset of AI? If that can we use those two interchangeably? <laughs> yeah, that's a funny one because you see I I I come from AI before machine learning was a hot topic. So and machine learning at that time was one area of 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 AI. So I still consider it to be one area of machine learning, uh, of artificial intelligence. The thing is that some of the companies have appropriated names. So, for example, when Microsoft says AI, what they mean is machine learning. So, um, so yeah, so I, I consider machine learning one area of artificial intelligence, which is a bit more general and looks also in other ways of reasoning and so on, not just... Uh, statistical learning or and by statistical learning is that pattern recognition or what does that mean yeah so statistical learning is basically what the the the, the hottest machine learning methods at the moment are employing so they are taking it's work it works on the prem and which is also the reason why ai is so or machine learning is so such a hot topic now is because it takes a huge amount of data and it crunches it it looks for sophisticated very sophisticated patterns in fact patterns that humans would never detect because they're highly non-linear right so um and that's what actually the definition of deep learning is so um yeah so it takes that and statistically analyzes and infers patterns 
in that and generalizes patterns and so on. Yeah. So from a medical perspective, thinking uh-huh. about AI, when was the sort of first use, you could say, of artificial intelligence? What is it being used for now and how is that going to expand? Oh, my goodness. I mean, there are so many applications of uh, machine learning and AI in general in uh, medicine. So, for example, I mean, you could go from completely tool side where you have robotics, which are assisting surgery, for example, for example, yeah, surgeries to going to a really logistical stuff where, you know, uh, uh, AI algorithms are helping uh, optimize uh, healthcare workflow, admin workflows, for example, to, you know, very specifically, like, for example, what we are working on in cancer, where we are trying to um, uh, pull together very different streams of information that we have about patients and have this sort of holistic analysis of the information that we have about the patient. So so there's, there's so many different areas of uh, AI where AI is employed in healthcare, but maybe from their personal experiences in their day-to-day work, maybe Grant and Evis might be able to say more. So, I mean, I think you, you've said it, one of the classic examples is, is um, AI workflow that could be within imaging or, or other areas of, of, of medicine. Um, you know, image, um, AI and image reconstruction, improving quality. When you think about um, in the past, if a patient had unilateral bilateral hip replacement, the images would be terrible, right? Being that CT or MRI, now you've got algorithm which will smooth those um, uh, artifacts. So now the images are great, even if the patient had a hip replacement, for example. That's um, just one of the examples. Um, to uh, then, um, you know, using AI for lesion detection, we've got a few um, uh, products out there on mammography. So um, using it as a second reader, maybe, uh, as well as um, outline, you still need a human at the end to sign it off. But um, CT colonography is outlining all the polyps. So you as radiologists sit and they say, okay, discard this, include this, this is, this is um, a, a tumor, maybe this is suspicious. Uh, some of the uh, chest um, uh, screening is the, the nodule recognition uh, is done and counting is done by CT. So in a way, it's a lot of uh, areas which, which our job hopefully will become more interesting uh, because of this AI assistance, which takes care of, of, uh, of those things. Can you just talk a little bit a bit more about the, the learning side and how the data is interpreted? Just so like I understand it, that you, you mentioned that it radiate radiographer will tick it off and say yes or, or no I don't want to say tick box yes or no but do you do you get the question on, on the learning side of it oh you mean the uh, no I mean what I said is the AI algorithm the, the, the algorithm will, will give you all you know for example it comes with the scanners now they'll have a CD colonography package right so um, as you see it to to report them there'll be all the polyps will be marked in different colors and then as you read those um, images, um, you'll just really say, well, that, yes, I think I agree with this. And no, this is just a fault. And the, and the algorithm has overcalled uh, this. Although they're actually become, they've, they've become very good now. So in a way, what's done is that sort of um, an interesting part of the work of radiologists. But I want to get to, there will be a question, <laughs> it's bound to be a question. Do you feel secure in your job as a radiologist? Or is it following uh, <laughs> a famous statement? Yeah. Um, but actually what the AI is taking care of so far, or, you know, it hasn't entered full routine clinical practice for various reasons, 
but it's taking care or will take care of that sort of boring part, which is simply, you know, you don't want to spend the day like that. You really want to spend the day interpreting and concentrating on really important, you know, findings, the ones that actually need your intellectual input. Uh, and, uh, and I think we are about to see that, uh, um, not just the clinical practice, but also on the research and, and drug development. Um, so that's where. Can I just say one thing from the AI perspective, what Evis was saying is that, you know, these machines come already with pre-prepared models that will say, you know, this, what I spot on this image is cancerous, this is not, right? So they're classifying, right? And the, the reason they can do that is that because in the past, somebody else has done this and has trained the algorithm to spot what is and what is not cancer. So there were these radiologists elsewhere that were, you know, saying, doing this many days, <laughs> for many, many days, these mundane tasks, right? And saying yes and no. And then the model has learned to do this reasonably well. As Evie said, it comes prepackaged with it. But every time that you do it as well, when you the, when you add this new information, when Evie says yes, no, the model is getting much is getting more refined and more sophisticated and more accurate. So the more data, and this is the beauty of it with the statistical analysis, is that the the, the more data you have, the better you can uh, your mod models can perform in this particular domain. I absolutely agree, and it brings to the it brings me to the to the point of of the data sharing, which is so important. I think if we really want this to take off, we really need to be working all together, sharing data. Because as Matea will tell you, more data, better it is. You know, the more, the bigger the data set, the, you know, the better it is. So does that mean um, we should, uh, every time we uh, load a new version of of uh, Apple OS, that we should agree to sharing the faults? Because presumably that's the same concept. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt, but I need to make sure I'm following everything. So there were two topics in one this episode, cancer and artificial intelligence, yes? Not sure I would have guessed they'd go together. Me neither, but we started off chatting about cancer. Grant told us that cancer was first identified by Hippocrates over 2,000 years ago. Long time. The word cancer comes from the Greek word for crab because of the finger-like projections from a central mass looking kind of like a crab's claws and legs. Nowadays, we know cancer doesn't have anything to do with crabs. Or lobsters, for that matter. Instead, cancer is an overproduction of cells which can happen in any type of organ, tissue, or cell. The big four are lung, breast, bowel, and prostate cancer, which are the most common types. Together, they make up more than 40% of cancers worldwide. But there's actually over 200 types of cancer that you can get. Why? Because there are over 200 types of cells in the human body. This fact is both amazing and disturbing. Just like Nick's face after too many tequilas. We also learned that cancer cells have some special attributes which make them cancerous. Grant said, there's a range of skills cancer cells need to develop. Reminds me of Liam Neeson in Taken. I have a very particular set of skills. Except cancer cells' skills are all about avoiding death, encouraging new blood vessels to develop, and invading other tissues. These new behaviours can come from genetic changes which are inherited or a result of the environment. It will therefore come as no surprise that the most common cause of cancer is smoking, causing a whopping one-third of cancers worldwide. Here are a few more cancer facts which Grant didn't get a chance to mention in the episode, but he told us later, which really showcase how big of an impact cancer has on people. Fact number one. 
one in two people would develop some form of cancer in their lifetime. Fact number two. There were 19.3 million new cancer cases worldwide in 2020. Fact number three. According to 2019 estimates from The Who, the World Health Organization, not the band, cancer is the first or second leading cause of death before the age of 70 years in 112 of 183 countries and ranks third or fourth in a further 23 countries. Cancer's rising prominence as a leading cause of death partly reflects marked declines in the mortality rates associated with stroke and coronary heart disease in many countries. So by comparison, cancer is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Fact number four. There were 10 million deaths from cancer worldwide in 2020. Fact number five. Worldwide, there will be 28 million new cases of cancer each year by 2040. Those weren't exactly cheery facts, guys. What about how and when we can detect cancer? Is there some better news there? Apparently, detecting cancer has a lot to do with looking, visually, in various different ways. Ah, the good old Mark 1 eyeball, as my supervisor used to say. Can't beat it. But Evis told us that imaging isn't usually fine-grained enough to detect cancers smaller than about a half centimetre in size. Depending on the organ, the tumour may need to be bigger. And what do you mean by tumour? A tumour is simply a lump. However, not all lumps are cancerous. Tumours can either be benign or malignant. A benign tumour is a lump that could grow but is not cancer, will not spread and hence cannot kill you although it could cause other issues, depending on where it is. A malignant tumour, on the other hand, is a cancerous lump which can, if untreated, grow, spread, and, in the worst case scenario, kill you, usually after spreading to other organs, which is metastasis. And Evis told us that it's unfortunately not always easy to tell the difference between benign and malignant tumours with our current technology. Her work is focused on trying to create virtual biopsies, which basically means getting good enough images of the potential cancer so that you don't need to go in with surgery, remove the tissue and take a look in person. I feel like we've lost track of the artificial intelligence thread. What is it and where does it come into all of this? Matea offered a good definition of what AI, artificial intelligence is. A system which is able to learn, reason and perform tasks that if humans did them, we'd consider them those actions to be intelligent. We have a lot of AI around us nowadays, sometimes even just helping us with mundane tasks. Like, hey Siri, please play the latest version of Mind Over Chatter, on repeat, and give it a five-star review. Although the tasks we give these everyday AI systems might seem boring, a lot of technology goes into making this work. But AI is also being used, as Evis told us, for very complex and important tasks such as tagging and annotating images of potential tumours. AI and its close cousin machine learning both rely on huge amounts of data. They both look for patterns, including patterns that humans would perhaps struggle to detect. I'd love to be at that family reunion. AI looking all young and shiny, flash with cash. Her cousin machine learning in the corner, grumpy at all the attention AI is getting. Grandpa JPEG in the background looking after all the little pixels, and great grandma Floppy, who can't remember much nowadays, asking for a gin and reformat. There are so many applications for AI in medicine, from physical tools, for example, machines that help surgeons do better surgery. I think the verb is to surge, help surgeons surge better. To algorithms that help to optimize administrative tasks. 
Other applications include helping healthcare providers develop a more holistic analysis of their patients by looking across different sets of data about them. We'll come back to this one later. Crucially, Evis pointed out that AI is helping improve the quality of images taken for medical purposes so that doctors can better understand what's going on inside the body. She also mentioned AI is being used for lesion detection, for example, in mammograms. A lesion is an area where the tissue looks abnormal for some reason or another, possibly cancer. And from what Evis described, the AI looks at a mammogram image and flags up potential issues. But it's not like the machine is diagnosing the patient single-handedly. A doctor still has to review the AI's flags and decide what is actually concerning and worth following up. Matea added that every time the doctors make these decisions and inform the computer of their decisions, the computer improves itself. That's where the learning bit of machine learning comes in. I was very interested to hear that um, surgical robots are um, being designed with AI in mind because I use a surgical robot to do a lot of my kidney surgery and, you know, so for folk listening, that's where the surgeon is sitting in the corner of the room controlling the device and they're they're separated by a few metres from the patient whose um, the instruments are held by a... Uh, a robot that the arms of which you're controlling. Um, so it's interesting to know that that was designed like that. Um, it's, so ever, building on Evis's point around automating imaging, so a project that we're both working on is um, whether we can screen people um, for kidney cancer. So it's a disease that doesn't have about the vast majority of people, about 90% of people who have small curable kidney cancers have no symptoms. And so usually I find out about these people because Evis reports a scan done for another reason, you know, back pain or, or um, prostate exam or something, and, and they catch a kidney cancer on the scan. Um, and we, 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 we treat them at that point. So we're doing a project uh, which is um, funded by Yorkshire Cancer Research, actually, um, and is uh, a, a, in a in a population of smokers and ex-smokers who are having CT scans done to check them for lung cancer. And we have obtained funding to obtain a, an, a, a, a tummy CT scan on those same people. And what happens with those scans, of which there are thousands, so we've already recruited over 1,500 people to this study and we'll uh, end up with 6,000 people recruited, um, is that a radiologist has to go through these scans with a fine tooth comb. And there's a lot of clockwork in the, on the, in the abdomen, in the tummy. You know, your bowel, pancreas, kidneys, liver, spleen, lymph nodes, gynecological organs, blah, blah. And so there's a lot to look at. Um, and what Evis uh, and I want to do, and, and we've got a great PhD student and a colleague who are leading on this, is automate that process so that we have a first pass done by, by uh, aut automatically, this is a, like Matea says, will be a model that l we train and then learns for itself. Uh, so we're starting off with uh, scans of our patients in Cambridge and then we will import in these 6,000 scans to, to confirm our findings and see whether this is achievable, which obviously will save a huge amount of time and, and automate this whole process. 
can you so most our listeners won't be familiar with like the types of images that you're talking about like I understand there's a lot going on in the images but I wonder if Evis or Grant one or both of you could describe what the image looks like and then I think Evis you mentioned polyps and lesions and in, in an answer earlier what what are those what does it look like so um uh, so you know let's there are, there are a variety of, of, of uh, imaging techniques you could use, and that's a bit of a uh, organ dependence. So as I was speaking about breast cancer, and, and you know, you start with a mammogram, and, and I think half of the world's population knows what a mammogram is. Well, not half, like whatever, whoever is over the age of 40-something, depending on the country, right? Uh, but what we what we've considered in our effort more is cross-sectional imaging. What we, what we mean with that is really uh, CT scans, um, that uh, that we use for an example, you know, even without getting into cancer, if somebody had has kidney pain and there is a renal stone, for example, just to simplify it, uh, then you need a, a CT to check where the stone is um, and what's doing in a way. So you, it, they are very quick to acquire now. It's a matter of seconds the scan is done, but this is our workhorse for oncology. So the majority of our patients will have a CT. We also use MRI, uh, which has the advantage of not having any radiation. Uh, but it takes longer time, it's noisy, and there's multiple sequences uh, involved, so um, it, it needs a lot of protocol input, uh, but also access is more limited, right, um, as, as you can imagine. So, so uh, really, our research at the moment, uh, or the main AI research, um, is actually concentrated on CT scans. Uh, and I wanted just to follow on the segmentation um, uh, uh, what what uh, Grant was mentioning for the detection for the project uh, with the with the kidneys cancer, we're also doing some work on on tumor segmentation using AI. Just the the patient to have diagnosed cancer, being that kidney or ovarian cancer, so it's metastatic, you know, at presentation metastatic disease. And why would you need, why do we need AI for that? Uh, well, for two reasons really, uh, or two main reasons. One of them is when patients present metastatic disease, and unfortunately, the majority of the ovarian cancer patients do because it's a very sal um, a silent disease uh, with no specific symptoms. Um, it's it's a, it's it's very labor intensive to to measure and outline all those lesions. Okay, so. An AI tool will facilitate that uh, in a way that um, it will be quick, it will be reliable, so it doesn't matter who will do that, it will do a good job. Ideally, you want to catch the cancer early when it's just in the organ of origin, right? And small, okay? But unfortunately, for some cancers, we detect them too late, so it's spread in other parts of the body. For example, breast cancer spreading in the lung or the liver, or a kidney cancer going to the lung, which is the main site, or the bone. For ovarian cancer, it's a little special because as it presents, it presents with disease throughout the abdomen because it starts at the end of the tube, of the fallopian tube, so there is no barrier to the abdomen while the kidney tumors are within the kidney in a way, and, you know, but the ovarian cancer is on a, at the end of a hollow viscous, a hollow sort of structure, so it spreads immediately through the cavity. Um, so we end up with a static disease at presentation, which is which is unfortunate. Um, so, the, so the, you know, one of the main roles of the segmentation is can we do it more accurately, quicker, because then we measure the volume and then that gets into a report. And this is important because you can inform the how the, the, uh, the, the drug is working or not, the treatment is working or not. 
But we spoke about the virtual biopsy part, right? When the tumors can be quite heterogeneous. And I'm going to use, what I mean with I'm going to use an example, which I think, and which I like at least. So think of two paintings, okay? Think of a, um, a Rothko painting, which is kind of relatively homogeneous, right? He tends to paint sort of homogeneously, right? You know, n nothing much beautiful, wonderful, but nothing much, so not much action. And think of a Jackson Pollock painting, which is everything is there. It's all sort of, you know, um, you know, dancing and singing in a way. You know, it's very heterogeneous. So, so that you can see with the eye, and that you can see sometimes in tumors where they're big, you can say, well, this tumor has got more fluid or more, you know, calcification or. But most of the time, the the the, the tumors will be very gray on CT. It's something you cannot detect in terms of uh, heterogeneity with your eye, like Matteo was saying, AI can help us detect things that you cannot see uh, with a bare eye. So we are then using um, uh, AI tools to actually quantify that heterogeneity. So you can do it on a Rothko painting, on a Jackson Pollock painting, homogeneous, heterogeneous, but you can do it on a CT, so on a tumor, on a cancer. Eros, so, what do you use for that? What do you use? What kind of feature? So it gives you that information to detect that on a Rothko painting and a Jackson Pollock painting. <laughs> so actually, well, I've run some uh, very simple um, uh, heraldic features, you know, on that. You can do it on a Rothko painting. I mean, you can do it on anything, right? On a photograph. But what, what Mireille and Rena and in our group, you know, the members of our group are doing, they're, they're also, you know, they're uh, not just the first and the second order and heraldic, but they're actually doing more complicated feature selection, the shape, the contour, um, uh, and also the, the, you know, other marks of heterogeneity. So it's an ensemble of features. And then, of course, um, in order to actually believe the features, you, you want to know they're robust. So we're actually then using AI to choose those features which are robust across scanners across the way those scanners are required and so on and so forth so there are multiple levels we're kind of using the the mathematical let's call it input of various you know ways to actually make sure that uh, that we we get robust results so the you asked about how the images look and um so as a non-radiologist i can tell you what i think they look like so um the, the Evis will be dismayed to hear this, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, so we sometimes do ultrasounds, or we, radiologists, sometimes do ultrasounds, which is a jelly scan, would be, uh, and then a scanner run over the top of the jelly. Uh, most people will know that um, for checking pregnancies. Um, and that is essentially very difficult to interpret the images to a non-radiologist. It's, it's, it's sort of grades of grey from very bright white with um, uh, a, sort of the appearances of a stone um, to very, very dark, which would be the appearances of a liquid, I think. Yeah, your Jackson Pollock, right? right? Like so, there you go. So, so a bit, yeah, so you can tell different features, but it's the radiologist doing the examination really reports it verbally, and we don't tend to save many pictures because it's kind of a a real time doing it there and then image. Um, then uh, the next um, level of detail, I suppose I would say, is CT scanning. And to me, that as an amateur radiologist, that depends as to whether or not there's any contrast, which is um, a, a, a dye that's injected into the vein at the time of the scan, whether there's contrast or not. And um, 
with the contrast, you get um, different parts of the body bright, uh, lighting up to different degrees. But essentially, for people listening to this, a CT scan, if we showed a CT scan to, an, uh, to, a, to a, a, a non-medical person, you'd, you'd probably be, depending on the way we, we cut the slices, you'd be able to tell that looks like a kidney or the brain or the lungs or the heart based on how we present it to you. It looks like you would imagine um, seeing a slice through the body, essentially. Uh, and then MRI scan is kind of the scan, um, the patient goes through a, a, a circular donut, just like a CT, but it's a, more like a tunnel than a donut. And um, they lie in that tunnel for, for sometimes over an hour, depending on um, how, how detailed we want to get. And those images, some of them I can understand, um, and they look a bit like a CT scan, and you can make out the kidneys and the liver and such like. But then there are others that are just a blur to me and need Evis uh, to look at them. And then I suppose, Evis, you probably, for some of those, pick out features that then go into what you would call radiomics. Maybe we can get into the radiomics thing in a sec. I just want to sort of consolidate what you've been saying and check that I understand. So basically the AI isn't really helping with taking the image. We already have the technology to do that. It's helping with analyzing, you know, the the dots on the screen or the the gray and gray, different types of gray to point out where these lesions are that might be cancer. Is that right? So there is AI algorithms embedded into the acquisition, though. So actually, the AI it's not taking the image, but is is sort of embedded there to improve the image acquisition and and the speed. So yeah, so. there are many areas where AI is helping. Exactly, it so is helping I, also in taking the image, right. refining the image, making it sharper because the machine can't. And it also learned that through a lot of data and modeling. And then there's the other bit of AI that, or another, not the other, because <laughs> there's so, so many, which is helping Evis to classify these images as ca cancerous or not cancerous, for example, in this particular case. I mean, the other thing I wanted to say is actually that when Grant said sometimes some of those images that we acquire on MRI, that they look the same to me. It's just the, what you extract from them by modeling the uptake of conscious, for example, the modeling the, the diffusion, is that quantitative information fits on the AI algorithm. So they can look blurry, but it doesn't matter. They have the information we need to extract. So is a metaphorical like comparison, like the a filter on Instagram or something, which highlights my under eye so my the bags under my eyes aren't as visible <laughs> or or hides them or doesn't hide them makes them more visible is that kind of a comparison in terms of how it's sort of like t helping the image quality yeah you might also think about imagine your camera or you know the camera on your phone right you take a picture and if you do the magic button that improves the picture it's a bit like that so, gotcha. you know, it makes everything clearer, it takes away shadows, and that kind of thing. So that's what AI algorithm does. But you just have to remember that by doing that, sometimes you lose some information Absolutely. That, you have, that you might need. So we, we sometimes want the original images as well, because what we extract from them it's you don't important. trust the AI algorithm. No, oh, I do, I do, I do, I do know you. Well, you know I do. Of course I do. That's what I like. You're right. You're right to do so. Hi, me again. 
Sorry, but I've lost track of all the different types of scanning and pictures and things. Well, first Grant talked about a research project that he and Evis are currently working on, where they are trying to improve kidney cancer screening and treatment. At the moment, 90% of people who have curable kidney cancer have no symptoms, so these cancers are usually only caught because the patient is having a scan for some other reason, which then unexpectedly shows evidence of kidney cancer. Over 6,000 people will have their tummies scanned as part of this project, and a radiologist will have to go through every scan with a fine tooth comb. Which I always thought was a fine tooth comb, as in, ooh, well isn't that a fine comb you have there, and wait, are those canines I see? How divine. Grant mentioned just how much you've got going on in a tummy, stomach, liver, bladder, 4.5 metres of intestines. Not to mention last night's curry. Sounds like a mess. You have no idea. So Evis and Grant are trying to automate the process of combing through the images to look for potential cancer. Think of a superhero scanning the police radio channels for signs of trouble. Except unlike a certain superhero we know, Evis and Grant don't then dress up like an arboreal nocturnal mammal and go all vigilante. And if this automation works, it will save doctors a lot of time looking at tummy scans. Evis and Grant also talked us through some of the different imaging techniques. The type of image you take depends on what tissue or organ you want to look at. We talked about ultrasounds, CT scans, and MRI scans. Let's take a quick Scan look at them one, in turn. Ultrasounds, aka a sonogram, aka a jelly scan, although honestly who calls it that? This is the one that people usually get when they're pregnant. It uses high frequency sound waves to create an image in real time. Scan number two, the CT scan, aka a cat scan, although nothing to do with cats. This is perhaps one of the most common and quickest scans. CT stands for computed tomography. The scan uses a combination of x-rays and computer wizardry to take a series of images of one part of the body from lots of different angles, which will show a slice of your insides. The machine, it's important to point out, is donut shaped. But it doesn't taste as good, trust me. Scan number three, the MRI scan, aka Turns out no one has come up with a good nickname for this. I'm pushing for Blamange scan. This scan takes a lot longer, but as there are no x-rays, there's no radiation. MRI stands for Magnetic Resonance Imaging. MRI machines use magnetic fields and radio waves to take pictures of your insides. And this machine does not look like a donut, instead it looks more like a tube or tunnel. Like a canolo, perhaps. A giant magnetic canolo. <laughs> perhaps. Evis also talked about how AI can be used to look at images of organs where there may be a lot of abnormal looking areas to inspect. It can then be used to help identify the specific areas that may be cancerous. These types of images together with AI can also be used to determine how well the cancer is responding to treatment. Evis also said that AI can help us detect things that the human eye simply can't see. What may appear to be a grey splodge on a scan might actually have a lot more going on. Data which a computer can see, but we can't. The Mark 1 eyeball is not infallible. Evis described the types of tumours in terms of abstract paintings. Mark Rothko versus Jackson Pollock. Rothko was the guy who painted a lot of sort of big, fuzzy, friendly colour blocks. What Evis called homogenous. 
Wow. Poor Mark Rothko. Imagine being told your art is homogenous. And Pollock was the guy who basically splattered paint all over the canvas in beautiful ways, but very splattery. The splatter paintings are what Evers called heterogeneous. All mixed up and lots of stuff going on. Something tells me we're not going to be invited to be art critics anytime soon. AI can quantify this distinction between homogenous and heterogeneous images, between how Rothko-like or how Pollock-like a tumour is. But more than just analysing the images that are already captured, AI can also help with taking the images as well. Although it sounded like there might be more to consider in terms of how AI uses data to make its recommendations to doctors. So on that, that idea of trust there, can we just talk about how we sort of think about the quality of data that we're getting? Matea, can you sort of expand on that? Like we hear this phrase in, in computer like AI, you know, garbage in, garbage out. How does this sort of apply to sort of the d quality of data in healthcare? So there are many layers that we could, that I'd like to talk about uh, you know, with respect to this. So the first thing is security and safety, I guess. So the first thing is responsibility to patients, to the people that we collect and harvest the data from. And so I think that that is the, the challenge that we will need to, that we have to address and it's very, very urgent that who has the control of the information. I mean, in medicine, it's sometimes quite straightforward because most patients will be very happy to share their data for research purposes to improve healthcare. So, um, so that's the first thing. Then how you store that data and who do you share it with? So that's the first layer of complexity in terms of the data. Then the next one is, you know, like how... How, how sophisticated are the machines the, in terms of the quality of the data that they can collect? And Eris has, and Grant has already spoken about that. And there's, I guess, from the, from the computer science point of view, from our point of view, we can't do very much about that apart from um, apply these enhancing algorithms to the, if the data is of lower quality. But what it is important to us as people who are designing algorithms that build models is that the, the data that we collect or are given that our colleagues in medicine do collect is represent this that we remove biases basically that is representative of the population that it's supposed to be then inferring you know uh, future decisions for so for example if ai is used in the to support the clinical decision support system to the to the clinician then Surely you want that algorithm to have learned the models from the data of all of the types of patients and, and people that walk into that office with the clinician, right? So I think that, that from the technical point of view, I think this is one of the things that we need to address. And there are either sort of a methodological approaches to it in the sense that you know, you just have to make sure that you that your that the, that the data that the model the data that the models are trained on can contain representatives of all these groups, or there are also technological solutions of how to remove biases or how to address the problem of biases, for example. 
So, um, Matea, um, can I just ask, um, this is an important point around um, quality control and ensuring it's fit for use in humans, right? So when we give drugs to a patient uh, and when we do that in a clinical trial um, and then actually when these things are approved, it goes through very strict governance. So the the, there's an organisation called the MHRA which keep a very close view of that there is enough evidence and that things are safe enough to, to do this in a clinical trial and we're not going to put people into um, or co cause undue danger. Um, is there any governance that you know of or uh, structure for introducing AI um, algorithms into the clinical workplace? I don't know about the clinical workplace, but I definitely know about the European law, which I guess may, might no longer apply to us here in the UK, but it's the GDPR, the dreaded GDPR, where basically what it's saying is that, that, that if there is any decision made about the human by an algorithm, then it needs to be completely clear why that decision was made and how that decision was made. And the problem with that is that, you know, these deep learning algorithms, they are just so, they're black boxes, right? They're so highly non-linear that we cannot, we don't understand exactly how and why these decisions were made. So if you are making decisions about patients uh, with the help of a deep learning algorithm, you need to well know and understand why that decision was which at the moment is a technically an unanswered, it's an open problem. So, and there's huge areas of research that are addressing this now, including in my own group, that we are uh, addressing this question about explainability. Of course, you could use other models, like, for example, uh, decision trees, which are completely explainable. You just follow the decision. Is this such and such? Yes, go this way. And then you can follow it and understand why this was made. But I, I guess this kind of brings me to the, uh, the the one area of application of AI that we haven't, in healthcare, that we haven't touched upon and which is actually common to all three of us here, which is the, why we actually know each other. And, it's, uh, uh, and the idea is that, you know, that we have all of this different data per patient, right? So the normal, I mean, I'm not a medic, so please grant this correctly, but the normal workflow, if I understand correctly, is the patient comes to the, to the office to, the, to see the clinician and the clinician takes and collects some clinical data. And the next thing is they might do some imaging data and the next, you know, take some x-rays or CT scans and so on. And the next thing they might do is something looks suspicious, so they might do a biopsy and then take some more information from that with like digital pathology or something like that um, and get some molecular data and so on. And then, uh, then finally, uh, the further down the line, maybe they will do some genomic sequencing and get a lot of information about that particular uh, patient. So in the past, what was happening was that you know, each, for each, this we call them different modalities of data, right? So for each modality, we would deploy a different algorithm and then try to find what's the cross-reference um, cross and cross-relations. But what we are doing collectively is we are trying to integrate all of that for a particular patient so and analyze it holistically at the same time. And so... Uh, 
uh, we are all three of us are in the same consortium about the integrative cancer medicine with precisely this purpose um, where we are trying to come up from up I'm talking from my point of view from the computer scientist point of view from a person working in AI come up with techniques that are able to do that and come up with methods, algorithms that are able to do that, and then deploy them further down the line uh, in supporting clinicians in their uh, in using clinical decision support systems when they're making decisions about diagnosis, treatment. Or so no, I mean, like, one thing to add there, actually AI is being regulated same as being a medical device in a way. So um, um, if you really want to, it depends how you, you know, depends on the intended use that as Mireya absolutely, um, Mireya absolutely specified. So if you're just using a segmentation tool, then it's a different sort of class. It will be just a class one. Because you're not actually making decision on the, you know, AI is not used to make decision. But if you're using for decision support, are you saying this is definitely a tumor? Uh, or um, like in the context of integrating the data, then you can predict outcome that then uh, you'll need a class 2A or 2B, you know, depending on, on what stage you are. So there is, it is regulated. And I think, um, I think the, the area of the, the time of chaos kind of is ended now. It's a bit more sort of, you know, regulated. Uh, but I wanted, what I want to say, following up on Mire on, on Matea's, uh, I'm sorry, Matea, we have Mireille and Matea, <laughs> <laughs> both great. So on, uh, on, on that is that it's, it's very interesting, actually, when you think about it, um, we as humans come integrated, right? You know, everything works in an integrated way, all the processes, you know, in your, in your you know, body as physiological, but also in your brain, right? And when disease happens, we, the doctors, disintegrate people so then we go well this part is imaging and then maybe we do a biopsy there and then you know without thinking in that combined way so i think i think the time has come to start giving that integrated care when all these based decision support are based on an on informed decision by integrating multiple streams of data and not just for decisions at a, a tumor board meeting when you decide about you know treatment next treatment but also i mean and, and grant I'll, I'll you'd you'd be best place than me here but also i feel that if i were to be a patient and maybe because i know more as, as of in the other side if i were to be a patient if i sit in your office i kind of want to really have in one screen the my disease you know really i just want to understand it you know not just showing me a bit of image and then this is a bit of a sample of your but really one sort of dashboard of Evis, this is where we are, and that this is what I think, but what do you think? So, and you, in, you kind of involve the patient in that decision support, uh, in that sort of decision you make in a much more informative way. You know, you're informed, and, and I don't know what you think about it because you are the one who's actually sitting there with the patient. Yeah, well, well, um, that's right. So I, I, I think our brains are very good at bring assimilating data, aren't they? So we, we do this all the time. We sort of, you know, you, you decide based on multiple stimuli that it's safe to cross the road. Uh, and, and, you know, mostly you get it right, but occasionally you get it wrong. And um, so as Matea says, we, we now have multiple streams of data coming to us about, about patients. 
And a lot of the a lot of the time, we can assimilate that data in our brains and make the right recommendations to the patient. But sometimes we don't do that well enough, or we certainly can't do what Eva suggests, which is actually clearly explain to the patient or display to the patient why we're making those those recommendations. You know, for me, a, an example would be why I would recommend a certain type of surgery to one patient but not to another. And I'm factoring in the, the tumour characteristics on the scans. I'm factoring in how they walked into the room. Did they come in sort of on a Zimmer frame or did they hop, skip and jump into my consult room? Um, I'm factoring in the medical problems that I know about from their records and the medications they're taking. And I can't always sort of give them a percentage or an exact reason for things. So it's, it, it would be extremely helpful to be able to do that in a much more structured way. And we currently, I suppose we can do it, as Matea says, for one stream of data at a time. But where we've fallen over and not yet been successful is bringing in the sorts of data that we are getting routinely, but also the sorts of data that we're getting in a lot of the clinical trials that we're running. Um, so, for example, we're running a trial called WIRE, which means Window of Opportunity, WI, in renal cancer, RE. We give all clinical trials memorable names. Uh, and um, in WIRE, we're giving, uh, offering patients some drug treatment before we do their surgery for kidney cancer. So it's a window of opportunity because they'd otherwise be sitting at home thinking, heck, I'm not having my surgery yet. It's another few weeks down the line. Uh, this cancer could be growing and spreading and we want to offer them drug treatment to try and prevent that from happening. And the exciting thing for us about WIRE is not only being able to offer patients these new drug combinations, which we hope will benefit them and reduce the size of the tumour and such like, but it's also being getting a lot of new information about the cancer and about how the drug is working on that patient's body and the tumour. So, you know, we get, we're getting imaging data that Evis gives us. We're getting imaging data that she wouldn't normally have access to on the National Health Service that is through the university. We are getting... Um, we're using Evis's special habitats, the different areas of her paintings that she mentioned earlier, the tumour, different areas to tell us different things about the, the tumour. Um, we are getting blood and urine samples as the patient's on these drugs. And, uh, and then when we do the surgery, we are once again sampling the different bits of the tumour that are, represent the different bits of Evis's paintings. Um, and, um, uh, and then in follow-up, we get, we get more blood and more urine. And we do genomic profiling. We look at the proteins that are present. We look at... Uh, changes uh, that are happening to the DNA and to the RNA and, and all manner of complex uh, analyses. Now, it's, it's possible to bring one of the, each of these layers together, but it's, all, it's completely impossible for our brains, which can just about work out how to cross the road, uh, how to bring all of these elements together. And that's where we need uh, AI and, and Matea and her team's expertise to bring it all together so that we can then say to our patients, we've got all these streams of data, here they all are. We think the relevant things about you and your tumour are 
these elements here and that means that we should treat you in this particular way with surgery or with radiotherapy or with this drug and 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 we've got a clear rationale for this it's based on this computer program we developed and it's always learning and this is where we've got to i just want to say that this all might look you know these are really really hard questions that we are <clears throat> addressing right so it's not easy to do this holistic analysis right but i want to say that the goal of our work is not to replace the clinician, is to help clinicians make better decisions and help patients be better treated, faster diagnosed and so on. And I think that that's, that's where the direction of travel is, is in this kind of supportive, personalized medicine. And that's our, our ambition, really. So. Uh, although we're talking about patients, we forgot to say and mention that Patients' involvement in this type of research with AI is critical, and we're doing it actively. Uh, all three of us with various projects, but I just want to give you one very quick example on that segmentation AI versus humans, i.e. me versus an AI. We've now, we're now in, uh, uh, we've just started a study involving patients, and really, in a in a in a scientific way, in collaboration with the Department of Public Health really recording um, how do they feel about the use of the AI, because ultimately AI is going to be used if only if patients want it. So I think this is accepted, then this is really important. So I, to patients, you know. Nick, am I right? I heard you going on about garbage again. That's right. I asked about the garbage in and garbage out concern. We've heard about this idea before in the context of AI. It's the idea that if you don't give the AI good data to learn from, it won't be able to make sensible recommendations later. Matea told us when it comes to AI in a healthcare setting, data control and storage is a really important consideration. You also need to know, is the data representative of the population? Or are there some types of patients who routinely don't want to share their data for research and therefore may not be accounted for in the final algorithm? Grant asked about the governance of a use of AI in a healthcare setting. Basically, what are the rules and who's setting them? Matea told us GDPR has an impact here. If a decision is being made about a human by an algorithm, it needs to be clear how and why that particular decision was made. GDPR being the General Data Protection Regulation, Europe's new data privacy and security law, which came into effect in 2018, and which imposes specific requirements on automated decision-making. We've heard the term algorithm a few times in the conversation. What do we mean by that? An algorithm is a process or a set of rules to follow for solving a problem. Thanks, BBC Bite Size! The rules usually have to be followed in a certain order, like you would always put your socks on before putting on your shoes. Although I'm guessing Facebook's algorithm to determine what you see in your feed or Google search algorithm are both a little more complicated than socks on before shoes. Excellent advice, however, except if you're wearing sandals. Unless socks and sandals is your look, but even then make sure it's socks before sandals. Socks after sandals is just wrong. Transparency, or rather the lack of it, can be an issue though, especially when you get to these really complex algorithms that are much more difficult to follow how they work. Something like Grant's example of deciding whether or not it's safe to cross the road. Evis said that AI is also regulated in some ways like a medical device, depending on how exactly it is being used. Matea explained how for every patient there can be lots of different types of data, images, information from biopsies, genetic sequencing, etc. 
Matea and her team are looking at how AI can use these different types of information to develop a more holistic understanding of what's going on with each patient, and to enable doctors to make better decisions about diagnosis and treatment. Evis said doctors disintegrate people and look at each individual issue separately, but actually patients could receive better care if their data was looked at more holistically rather than one issue at a time. I once disintegrated, it was watching the opening of Up. Grant explained that often a doctor's decision about care can depend on lots of factors and many different types of data. For example, even how a patient walked into the consultation room could be a factor in whether the doctor recommends a certain surgery or not. It does sound, though, like a more structured approach to decision-making that is explainable could be helpful for both patients and doctors. Absolutely. Grant also talked about the WIRE project, a clinical trial he's working on where patients with kidney cancer are treated with drugs while they are waiting for surgery. From images and other data collected throughout the process, they are learning more about the cancer and how it responds to this kind of treatment. And this also helps them determine what treatment is best for each patient. They're looking at images, genomic data, tumour biopsies and blood and urine. Matea emphasised that the goal of all this work is not to replace doctors, it's to help them make faster and better decisions for patients. That's exactly what the computer scientists would say before they build the DoctorBot 3000. As Grant and Evis emphasised earlier, speed is key to dealing with cancer. We have to stop it before it spreads. So faster and better decisions really are a good thing. As Evis said though, all of this progress is dependent on patients agreeing that they're happy for AI to be involved in healthcare. And none of this could be done without the data and participation of current patients. Thanks patients, we all owe you one. Well, looks like we've reached the end of another episode. And the end of the season. Stay tuned for more from Mind Over Chatter HQ ahead of season four scheduled for later on this year. Until then, please spread the Mind Over Chatter word. Who do you know whose life is simply incomplete without our voices in their ears? And please fill out our survey to tell us what you think of the podcast. You can find the link to the survey in the episode description. We want it all, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And please make sure to leave us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. We like reviews. Hopefully a good one, not a bad or an ugly one. A huge thanks once again to our guests, Matea Yamnik, Evis Sala, and Grant Stewart. And finally, a big thank you to the sickeningly talented Carlo Ladd for our music and to the equally talented Alex Sadler for our artwork. See you next time. Bye. Bye.